Hey, what's going on? Welcome to The Doug Show. I'm Doug Cunnington, and in this episode, I'm going to talk about a few financial independence topics with the help of some previous guests. So I'm going to play some clips in here. And we have the mailbag. So there's always plenty of questions coming in via email, feedback at Doug.show if you want to send one in. And in general, over on the YouTube side, there's probably hundreds of questions that I don't even see in the comments. So I'm going to answer a couple of those as well. I will digress at some point in here, but I'm going to jump to some of the financial independence topics right away. I interviewed Carl and Mindy Jensen uh, several months ago separately. The interviews are out there and it is sort of an edge topic that I cover occasionally on the show. I'm interested in this stuff and since I moved to Longmont, I've been meeting more financially independent people who are, you know, quote unquote retired, but a lot of times they end up doing some sort of hobby or find other work that they enjoy doing that's not a corporate job. Usually it's something that they just enjoy and they like and they can make a few dollars and they have you know a lot of flexibility, which is one of the big things that flexibility and autonomy. I was, I don't know, I guess a few weeks ago I had a rant on how people get a little bit upset, especially on the internet, when they hear about people that are retired, but these quote unquote retired folks are still doing work and they get called out. They're called liars and they're, you know, it's just kind of a, it's a weird situation because in my perspective, it's really just about having options. And when you ask folks like, in in one case I asked Carl, Hey, like, what does retirement mean to you? And he, he talks about what it really means. And in fact, like a lot of us continue working and, and doing things because we like to work on stuff. We're kind of busy bodies usually, and it's totally normal to continue working on stuff. So I think a lot of people do have an issue with the retirement word. I've stopped using it and I just say financial independence. That's pretty clear. That explains what's going on. And in my opinion, it avoids the, you know, people calling other folks out and saying, hey, you're not retired. You're actually making money now, which I think it's fine. Like it's, it's fun to work on things. So anyway, I asked Carl, like, what does retirement mean to you? And here's what he said. I actually Googled the word retirement and the definition that, that came up is I think to cease doing work. And I, I hate the word retirement for that because I haven't ceased doing anything. It has changed and I'm doing things on my own term. But I work more than ever. I just do it for I just do it because I love it, and uh, some of it pays money, some of it does not. But it is definitely not to cease work. So retirement, in our definition, would be uh, <laughs> it's all it's such a hard question. I guess I would say I am not retired because retired means to stop doing something, but uh, maybe financially independent. But that doesn't. You could say you're financially independent, but that doesn't connotate the. Uh, stop work parts. So I don't know, fun ploy to uh, <laughs> do, do whatever the hell I want. Someone needs to come up with a new term. Have you ever thought about what would be an accurate term to describe our, our situation? I think I, I'm sure I heard it from some other smarter person, but like a work optional or the work that you're doing is optional and yeah. you, you have choices. Yep. Something like that. Cause you do some stuff that's making money and then there's some other stuff that you're just doing for fun. Yeah. And I should also disclose that my wife works and that was a whole other weird situation. She has a more formal employment agreement, 
But uh, she does it because she loves it too. I tell her almost weekly, if you don't like this anymore, stop. Don't do it anymore. She's like, no, I really get something out of this. So, And we have kids, so I need a activity that I really enjoy while they're mm-hmm. in school. So, But uh, yeah, a good, a great passive income source is a spouse that works. That is great. I have the same thing. So yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's passive for us at least. <laughs> yeah. And um, hopefully, yeah, if you asked... Mindy is uh, my real estate agent, Carl's wife. So um, hopefully this week she was uh, in good spirits after working with us. We're kind of, we're high maintenance. I'll put it that way. And then I'm going to hopefully have Mindy on the show. I didn't realize she was such a prominent podcaster until a little bit after. I, I think I listened to like one or two episodes and then it was like, oh, you're that Mindy. I was like, oh, whatever. And then I was like, oh. Oh, this is kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah. And, and by the way, I, you are not high maintenance at all. I have some stories I could tell you, which I will not say on the air because I don't want to hurt any feelings. But if you think you're high maintenance, uh, nah, you're not. <laughs> yeah. I'm like just walking in, apologizing constantly. But that's kind of my kind of my style. I don't want to. I don't want to be in position for anyone. You know. Yeah, so. I understand. You're a thoughtful. <laughs> person. So sticking with the retirement ideas, did you have like a hard time at the very end where you were like, ah, like we see the math, but what about the risk in the future, the unforeseen just future, the consequences that you may just have no clue about? Yeah, it's interesting. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm stupid, but from a financial standpoint, I never worried about anything. And I probably should have had because I, we didn't keep super good track of our spending and my $1 million in savings would not have been enough to retire for the 4% rule. You, uh, I think most people vastly underestimate the amount of money they spend. We didn't vastly underestimate it, but we did underestimate it. But at the time, I did not worry about money at all. And part of it was I, I knew I could just go back to work. I was a software guy, and I still get emails multiple per day about jobs, which I don't ask for. I don't know where these things come from, but I'm I'm never going to go back to the go back to a formal software job. The emotional part was very difficult, though. Like I said, I made my number a a year before I stopped working because I had worked really, really hard and built up a career for the previous 20 years. And just to let all that go, you've got the the sunk cost, all the time you spent learning these programming languages and all the time you spent working your way up, you've got this body of knowledge. So you're very valuable to your organization, like – I designed the infrastructure that our thing sat on in addition to being a coder. And I felt kind of kind of bad, and that was probably selfish because no one is irreplaceable unless you're Elon Musk. But, uh, yeah, it was very hard, and I'd known these people. <laughs> Often I don't think it's a good idea to become good friends with your coworkers, but I was, and I, I like these people a lot. And by leaving my job, I was going to leave a big part of my life behind. And I was worried about that vacuum too. Like, am I going to be bored after I leave this job? Am I going to sit around and really re- regret this? The thing is too, once I left my job, I probably wouldn't be able to go back to that one because I had a clearance, which would have lapsed after I quit. So once I closed that door, I there was probably no going back. So yeah, the emotional part was very difficult. I kind of had to, I say, kick my ass over the edge and just do it and see what happened. Carl explained that very well, of course. And I've been meeting more people who are retired and some are truly retired. And I, I think I've seen this when people 
just stopped their job. So I've met a few people that retired in the last, say, two years or so, and they're not really working on anything. In fact, I was hiking uh, with a guy around here and he was like, yeah, I thought about maybe starting a blog, but I'm not super interested in it and I'm just kind of enjoying my time off. I think after people perhaps decompress a little bit and get their footing, maybe get into more of a regular routine, then they figure out, all right, I have some time. There's a few projects that I want to work on that maybe do produce income. But a lot of times I find people working on home projects very often. I know when my dad retired, he actually retired fairly early. I should maybe have him on the show. He retired when he was just about to turn 50, which is pretty cool. He was a firefighter and got in his 30 years and saved up a lot of sick leave time and that sort of thing. And he retired before he was 50, which was pretty amazing. And I I thought it was cool then, but I didn't realize like how significant and you know pretty awesome it is, especially for a public servant type job. Uh, my mom was a nurse. So, you know, they weren't making a huge amount of money. They weren't getting like crazy bonuses. And we lived in, you know, pretty uh, working class neighborhoods, had, you know, shitty cars like my truck currently. Uh, I mean, they were fine, (laughs) fine domestic vehicles, which we enjoy. We're we're a Ford family, by the way, if anyone cares, we we typically just get Fords. Uh, The point is he worked on a couple, you know, projects around the house, uh, took some time. They, they started traveling a little bit more and my mom didn't retire as quickly. So she, she worked a little bit longer there. And currently my dad still has sort of like a little side hustle because he had uh, EMT training. He actually teaches CPR recertification classes for small businesses in the area. So he can work as much as he wants to. I think it's usually just a couple hours um, every couple weeks. Like it's really not a huge amount of time. And there's some admin work that he has to do to uh, submit to the forms and some other clerical type things. So again, just enough to keep him busy. He has some things on the calendar. So he has to you know go out and teach people stuff, which is pretty cool. And it's in his skilled profession his area that he, you know, spent a lot of time training and has uh, the knowledge and continues to keep the certification up, which is pretty cool. So again, I mean, he's retired, but he's, you know, picked a thing that he can work on where he has full autonomy and yeah, that should have him on the show sometime. This episode is brought to you in part by Ezoic, and you should check out their site speed accelerator and it makes your site load faster. It uh, gives you a much better chance of getting a high Google page speed insight score by using image optimization, lazy loading, CSS rendering, and much more. Although I think with WordPress uh, nowadays, I think it's supposed to be in the newest version, that lazy loading, but the other stuff is not. In fact, I was chatting with uh, Adam Smith, who's going to be a future guest. It sounds like a generic name, but it's a real dude. Trust me. He mentioned to me that one of the first things that he does when he buys a new site to optimize it is to work on the site speed. It's one of the sort of low hanging fruit where over time people end up with a site that loads a little bit slower than it should. Maybe there's too many plugins. Maybe the theme sucks, that sort of thing. So the site speed accelerator is sort of a shortcut to help you get a 
PageSpeed Insight score, a PSI of over 80, they actually guarantee it after using it for one week. They do have a seven-day free trial, which you can check out using the link in the show notes here. So check it out. Thanks to Ezoic. And moving on to a slightly, uh, you know, more random kind of thing. We uh, got out of the house. We saw a movie, actually a drive-in situation for the Boulder Film Festival, which was pretty cool. So it was down in the airport or down at the airport in Boulder. And it was on sort of a, uh, I guess, one of those portable screens that are probably up in more places now since drive-ins are a little bit more rare. And it was an independent film festival, which is, is pretty Nice. So we saw a documentary on uh, what's it called? Laurel Canyon. Yeah, it was Laurel Canyon and the music scene from like 65 to 75. So obviously I, I wasn't around. Well, maybe not obviously. I wasn't around at that time. So, but I enjoy the music very much. And I think this documentary is on some network somewhere. So if you Google Laurel Canyon and music and documentary, you should see this pop up. But there were many, many bands that I enjoy very much. I kind of like classic rock personally. And there were some that, uh, like, I didn't know of the band, but they were influential for others. So I'm going to read out. I actually went and I was like, all right, I want to make sure I mention all the bands. So I think one of the biggest ones was uh, Eagles. And is it The Eagles or just Eagles? I think it's just Eagles, but we want to say The Eagles. But... Regardless, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Neil Young was in there. Linda Ronstadt, Ron, now that I'm trying to pronounce it, Linda Ronstadt. There we got it. And then this awesome name, this is a fantastic name, Flying Burrito Brothers. Flying Burrito Brothers. That's a great name, I think. A lot of opportunities for logos, and I like burritos, so that's great. Little Feet, and that's F-E-A-T, I believe, not... Not like the body part, but like a feet. So little feet. You got Jackson Brown, Joni Mitchell, The Doors, The Mamas and the Papas, and Bonnie Raitt. There were several other people mentioned as well. And Steve Martin was even, uh, he had a little clip in there. So pretty cool documentary. If you're into that sort of music, check it out. It's kind of just neat to, to hear about. It sounded like a really sort of a crazy fun time in an in, insane neighborhood in Laurel Canyon down in LA. So pretty fun. Um, with the drive-in, we really enjoyed like seeing a movie that way. We have, I haven't been to a drive-in probably in 13 years now that I'm trying to think back. There used to be one uh, just really like five, six miles away from where I lived in Atlanta um, in my house. So I lived over in the Edgewood area back in the day. Had a house down there and there was a drive-in sort of south of 20 for the people that know the area down there. And I went uh, once or twice, not, you know, not a huge movie person, but the drive-in was cool. We brought um, popcorn and, and dinner and we didn't bring any drinks to drink in the car. They were like, don't, don't bring any uh, alcohol, like it's prohibited, blah, blah, blah. But I think I saw like... I mean, there were so many people drinking beers in their cars, and I think as long as you're safe about it, uh, you know what? No, don't drink and drive. Nobody do anything like that. But I mean, I think you could do some light tailgating inside your car, and no one would have an issue with it. So, I mean, pot's legal around here. So, and you're, they actually had a sign: no smoking of any kind 
<laughs> during the movie. So, but I mean, you could always do edibles, which there's a show on that, by the way. There's, I have a podcast on uh, marijuana. Somehow that made it into the mix. Speaking of other um, episodes here, if you want to hear the full interview that I did with Carl, it is um, out there. So if you just search for Carl Jensen, you could check that out. He retired when he was 43. And as he mentioned, he really kept working like for a year longer than what he like sort of really needed to do. And I'm going to play a clip from Mindy here coming up soon. And she, um, her interview is out there as well. And I'm hoping to do another interview with Carl. We've been, he's been pretty busy, but I think we're just going to have sort of a casual conversation. I think it could be fun, very smart dude. And we enjoy just chatting. So I, I'm hoping we'll be able to work that out pretty soon. Carl mentioned saving a million dollars as his sort of nest egg for retirement and all that. And it sounds like an impossible number. I know, I think when I first started doing my side hustle, I was, that was in 2013. And actually I should sort of triangulate how much I was making back then, but let's say it was 80,000, something like that. I was like, man, how, how in the world can you save a million dollars? That is banana. So if I made 80,000, I was probably paying, you know, 20,000 in taxes, something like that. So when you put that together and then you have normal living expenses, it's like, man, like how, how can you possibly save a million dollars, especially at, you know, age 43 or, you know, fill in whatever age. However, it is actually doable. And with the hindsight that I have now, I see that, oh, it, it is doable to save a million dollars. It's not as crazy as I thought it was, especially when you add time into the mix. Of course, it's super helpful if you can do a side hustle, make a full-time income, and just earn more money. If you can change some variables in the equation, it's super helpful. Carl is going to dive into compound interest and basically the advantage that you have if you're young. So by the way, I know there's a handful of you know younger folks in the audience and us old timers are telling you like save your money. Uh, compound interest can really work for you if, if you just start early enough. It's kind of a no brainer to be able to save uh, huge amounts of money, much larger than you can imagine. And it seems impossible, but it's really not. So here is Carl talking about compound interest. I would say the number one advice for anyone if they're thinking about doing this, and even if they aren't, the number one thing that I think everyone should do is keep track of expenses. You can completely automate that through a service like Mint or Personal Capital, where you punch in your credit card information, and then they track it and they'll categorize it. But I prefer to do it a little bit more manual way. So what I've created is a spreadsheet, and I can give you a link to this with a Google form that creates a survey. So every time I buy something, I pull out my phone, punch in my expense, it puts it in a spreadsheet, and then I can create pivot tables, which are tables that show exactly where the category where every dollar is going. So I would say do that because it might surprise you. Uh, the thing that surprised me about last year is we spent like $6,000 on restaurants. And I'm always making fun of people going out to eat, but then shit, we spent $6,000. I have no right to be making fun of anyone. And we eat at home pretty much all the time. But anyway, do that because the results might surprise you. And like I said, it's a good exercise for anyone because uh, you might you just might not realize what you're spending money on. And then after that, the number two thing would be 
really learn how to invest. It's not that difficult. People want to make you think it's difficult because they're trying to sell some product or their financial advisement services. But investing is not is not that difficult. It's learning about 401ks, learning about index funds, Roth IRAs, uh, maximizing your tax efficiency and stuff like that. So keep track of your spending. And then once you do that, learn what to do with the excess money that you have. And uh, shit, if you're young, like starting out, <laughs> if anyone's listening to this who's in their 20s, like uh, don't wait. The time to do it is now. I will say you, you asked about a switch flipping in my head. When I was in college, my girlfriend dragged me to this financial seminar thing. And I didn't want to go at all. She was a business major. I was biology and chemistry. And I get to this room and I'll never forget it. The first thing I noticed was that everyone was like over 60 and we're here and we're like 20. So at one point, the guy starts talking about compound interest and I'm sitting in the back row eating this cookie and this guy locks eyes with me. I'm like, oh my God, like what's he going to say? He's like, your advantage is your youth. If you have any excess money, like start saving it now because compound interest will make you rich. I'm like, holy shit. It was like, a, I think a rainbow went over my head and unicorns jumped over the, the building or something like that because uh, that always stuck with me. And the cookie probably fell out of my mouth. No, I don't think it was that dramatic. But, <laughs> but that taught me to start saving now. And it's interesting because now our net worth is far greater than the amount of money we've earned in our lives. So it's it's much better to have money working for you than to work for money. Indeed. Yeah. And I was, I didn't have the similar cookie drop out of my mouth moment, but for whatever reason, as soon as I got even the co-op job, so I was like 19 or something, yeah. we were eligible for their 401k. I worked at Nortel Networks back yeah. in the day. You probably oh, saw them. Yeah, Nortel. Yeah, until they like, it was right, right before like yeah. 99. So yeah. they tanked. But yeah, yeah. I, I started saving then and then maxing it out like, even when I was a college or I was paying as much as I, I could afford in there and still pay for school and everything. And then sure. as soon as I got a job, I was maxing out stuff. So did, did you guys do that too? Yeah, we did. I want to ask you a question because uh, sorry, a little tangent here. There's a yeah. controversial topic that comes up in the personal finance community, whether people are born savers or not. And I think it's true. I definitely think people are born to save or not. And it sounds like you were. And I knew I was too. Like uh, I remember growing up, I was always the one who wanted to put money in the way, how put money in the bank. I was knocking on doors to shovel people's driveway to earn money. And at the same time, my sisters were like, why are you saving this? Just spend the money. And my younger sister was only two years younger than me. So we grew up under pretty much the, the same conditions, but a completely different mindset around money. And still to this day, it, it uh, it's still the same way. So w what do you think about that? Do you think people are born to save or how did you get those values? I think... I don't necessarily think it, people are born to save and I think they can change what they're doing because yes. I've had some phases where I had like some credit card debt right when I got out of school with my first job and bought a house. Another story that uh, was a terrible purchase in 2005, whoa. which you know what happened. After yeah, we that. know what happened then. Um, so for me, I, I was similar. Uh, I remember asking my dad, I was like, Hey, I want to get a CD player. And he was like, sure. If you get it, then how are you going to get CDs? Like come up with a plan. And the next day I was pushing the lawnmower around the neighborhood, <laughs> going to, you know, people that had like clearly grass that needed to be cut and then started a, you know, six year career as a lawn maintenance, uh, you know, engineer, I could <laughs> nice. throw the engineer on there, but I saved a ton of money then. And at this point I'm like, if I just would have put that, whatever, $12,000 instead of like paying for college. Yeah, yeah. If I would have put that in like 23 years ago, wow. 
That that would be great. Yeah, even despite <laughs> two recessions, including probably the worst one of the worst ones of all time, right? It's amazing. Like, yeah, yeah, crazy. Yeah, so I I saved a lot of money, and to the point where I think I was in I can't I guess I was in college, but my older sister, who's like six years older, was buying her first place, and I lent her money for the down payment. So like I saved wow. that much money, and wow. she had she was a pharmacist, right? So she had. Yeah. Some decent cash, right? And then, like I said, at some point, I was around a bunch of other people who were running credit card debt, buying homes. And I was like, oh, this is like the normal activity. We're going out drinking, having a good time and whatever. And then my wife is much more of a saver. So once we started dating, she kind of reeled me back in. She was uh, like, what are, you, what are you doing, man? You're crazy. Yeah, what? Yeah. Like, why, why do you have a payment on this? So, so get your money in the market some way or another. Carl and I are not financial advisors, but it's pretty straightforward to just aim for a broad index fund. Vanguard is very popular. They have very low expenses, so it doesn't eat into your growth, which is one of the main issues when I was investing with an advisor from a company called, it rhymes with, uh, let's call it uh, Borthnestern Mutual for the people that know, which they were nice guys, but then I realized that they were charging an arm and a leg for the services and that eats into your profits like by a huge amount when you look at you know 30 or 40 years in the market. If they are charging a what seems to be a small percentage, it is hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's a huge amount of money. And sometimes financial advisors will charge you based on the amount of money that they are managing, which obviously the more the more that they are managing for you if you happen to be a good saver and or make a lot of money so that you're able to save a lot it can really add up and they're doing you know virtually the same amount of work and a lot of times their incentives do not match up with yours for example if they get a commission for putting your money into a certain product then they i mean who knows where they're putting your money? And that's the, exactly the situation that I felt like I was in. These are all just my opinions, by the way. So get your money in the market, especially if you're young. And otherwise, you know, if you're going to be able to put in your money for, you know, 10 plus years, those total index or total stock market index funds are usually a very good option. And that is primarily where I put my stuff. One thing that Carl mentioned that I sort of uh, glossed over and it was right at the beginning of that clip was expenses. So depending on your situation, you may have a pretty good handle or not. And I honestly had no clue what my expenses were until my wife sort of reined me in, as I alluded to in the uh, at the end of that clip. I didn't know. I mean, I was making good enough money and I was saving some. I felt like I was saving enough when I was saving, you know, 10, 15%, I was like, oh yeah, this is much better than the average of the, you know, the US, but that's not a very good litmus. And we save a whole lot more at this point, percentage wise. I think if you haven't tried to track your expenses, one easy way to do it, you know, Carl mentioned his method to just keep track sort of manually, you can type it in, there are apps you can use. But one 
easy way because really when you're when you start tracking your behavior sort of changes which is great right you maybe don't spend as much however one thing that you can do is just get your credit card statements and i assume maybe not everyone but i know a lot of people just put everything on their credit cards so that they will earn reward points which is what i do i have chase credit cards and then you're able to just look back at your statements over the past year, get a good handle on where your money's going and how much it is. If you've had a credit card for a few years, you can go back multiple years and just see, okay, here's about the average over the last three to five years. Very clear to see where you're spending your money, how much it is annually. Again, once you start tracking on a more granular basis, whether it's with an app or you're keeping it manually in a notebook, you your behavior will change a little bit. Hopefully your spending will go down, especially the the dumb products that you don't really need. And this is totally random, but for the people that enjoy the movie Dumb and Dumber, you maybe remember when um, it's uh, Lloyd, right? Lloyd, Lloyd goes into... Oh, I hope I got the name right. Lloyd, at the very beginning of the movie, he goes into the convenience store and he comes out with like a big novelty foam cowboy hat and like a little paddle ball and a bunch of just garbage, like food that he doesn't need. And he just like blew all their money. So hopefully you will avoid doing that when you know you have to keep track of it. And, you know, don't don't be one of the characters on Dumb and Dumber. That's probably something to live by there. Anyway, moving on, that's a great way to keep track of your expenses is to just go back historically and see what you spent money on because that is that is uh, sort of inarguable. That is what you spent and then you have a good handle on it. Of course, you could then identify areas like, oh, wow, we ate out way too often. Um, I see we're going out like four times a week and we could probably cut that down. Just a little tip. I do want to move into the Q&A segment. I did promise some questions here. And this Q&A segment is sponsored by the niche website Builders. And they are a service. They're a marketing agency. They're affiliate marketers, which is pretty cool. I mentioned Adam Smith earlier and I interviewed him. He is an affiliate marketer. He actually talked to me for a very long time about how he got started and he would purchase sites, fix them up and then sell them. So he was flipping them. He wasn't starting sites from scratch. He was just buying, buying under performing sites, getting a good value and basically able to flip them pretty quickly. He's done this several times. His story's awesome. I can't wait for the episode to come out, but he and his uh, partner started niche website builders because they were not happy with the services that they were getting. Um, out there in the world. So they created their own and then they had excess capacity. So they have this service that they're offering. So this is their Q&A segment. Several people ask about expired domains. And essentially the idea is you can buy an expired domain. That's a domain where say, I'm just going to make up an example, say a coffee shop goes out of business. So they had a website for a few years, they go out of business and then they don't renew their domain because it's not a business anymore. So it's out there. It maybe has a handful of backlinks. I'll just make up a number. Say it has 50 backlinks from coffee related type uh, post or other information on the web. What 
people are able to do is go buy an, an expired domain from some company or some entity or a webmaster that is not renewing it. And that site, that domain already has links going to it. So you're able to kind of shortcut some of the, the time it takes to rank and to build a site. You also have backlinks. And if it's I mean, you really need to get a relevant sort of topic area. You wouldn't want to build a website on um, dog training and then it's on like an old coffee shop website. That doesn't make sense. But if you had a coffee website, maybe that does make more sense. So you kind of get the connection here. But the, the big advantage is you're building on a site that used to be in existence and you're building on a site that potentially has backlinks right off the bat. So the theory is, and I've tested this before, and actually I did a terrible job because I, I picked domains that weren't relevant to the sites that I was building, but you're able to build a site, publish content, and potentially get traffic right away, and you already have backlinks going to the site, which everyone tells us, Google tells us, you know, backlinks are one of the main ranking mechanisms for the algorithm. So having backlinks to your site is a good thing. Everyone will agree with that. How you get your links, you know, people will argue about that, but backlinks are generally a good thing. It shows that other people with websites trust your site and they are linking to it. So that is the concept. I get the question all the time, hey, is it a good idea to build on an expired domain? Typically, I let people know, hey, if you're asking this question, then you probably aren't ready to do it yet. And the reason why is, an expired domain, while it's fantastic to potentially shortcut the process, there's a lot of pitfalls because there are SEOs and other sort of people that don't follow the guidelines from Google for a webmaster and they might spam the site, right? They may buy an expired domain linked to Viagra and uh, gambling sites, totally unrelated, and they do this sort of in in mass at scale and they're able to get rankings for a short time perhaps I, I don't know how that side of the business works or that side of seo works and then once it stops working the they don't renew the domain and it goes back out there in the world you may see a domain that has great metrics you may not observe any issues you, there are a handful of checks that a, a person would need to go through to make sure that the expired domain wasn't used for spam. And there are some sneakier ways to use a site for spam that are maybe not obvious right off the bat. So the danger is you find an expired domain, you pay 500, to, I'm just making up numbers by the way, but you pay 500 to $2,000. There's a big market out there to do this by the way. So Maybe you spend, you know, a couple thousand bucks on a domain that has great metrics, and then you put a bunch of content on the site and it may or may not work. That's the problem. You don't know if you're purchasing a domain that has a manual penalty. You're not able to see that information on the search console until you own the domain. So there's, again, there's a lot of pitfalls. However, if it's done well. And I've seen some very promising case studies where someone has bought a domain, they were able to get traffic a little bit faster, and maybe they're still somewhat of a quote unquote sandbox where the site doesn't rank as quickly or as well as it should, but it seems to pull out of there a little bit faster and the growth seems to be faster as well. 
like many things, it depends on the quality of the content, the amount of effort that you put into it, and you know how much how much work you do. But in general, I've seen some very good examples of expired domains working awesome. So if you are interested in this sort of topic, I can definitely go deeper and talk to some of those people that have case studies in place right now, shoot me an email feedback at doug.show. Or if you happen to, you know, catch me on the YouTube channel, you can leave a comment during a live stream and that sort of thing. So just want to throw that out there. I think it's a very interesting topic. And if you do it the right way, it's a very, uh, very good idea. Now, an even better idea is to get a domain that has not expired. So this could be in the form of basically finding a blog in the topic area that is maybe ignored. Maybe it's been neglected over the years. Maybe the person started a, you know, say a parenting blog. They covered a lot of different topics in there. They covered uh, like travel, home goods, DIY, project, like a lot of times a parenting site will have a million different topics on there. And sometimes people get busy. And if you came in and you saw that they had, you know, reasonable content, it wasn't SEO'd very well. The person didn't know, you know, what, what to do. They didn't know how to structure a site. They didn't know about internal linking and they have a handful of links. You may be able to buy the site from them for relatively cheap. I mean, let's face it, if you have a website out there and it's earning a very small amount, it's a monthly expense. Like you have to pay for hosting, you have to pay for the domain renewal and a couple other services. So, I mean, it's technically an expense if it is not earning any money. You can use that to your advantage. Even, you know, cold email sites that you know, look like they're under monetized and maybe have a decent backlink profile. And again, you could just work on, you could buy an existing blog and then put content there. And then you avoid the expired domain issue. The reason why I bring that up is there are theories that Google sees a domain that has been expired, let's say for six months or six years, some amount of time. And Google's like, well, that obviously expired. So if something like if that site starts up again, then maybe it's something that we should treat like a new site. So maybe there still is a bit of a sandbox that you have to deal with. So there's many variables out there. And I think with some of the case studies, um, potentially that I could interview the folks running those, then we can get more information and really just see some data. I think you could probably find examples for Uh, case studies where it didn't work and then case studies where it worked really well. So do let me know. Definitely curious about, uh, you know, the interest level and that sort of thing. Let's do some rapid fire style questions. So this is from Maria on YouTube. She said, do you give your writers a byline? Do you credit them or do you just put in your own name? What do you do? Do you just leave it blank? So I typically use whatever persona is on the website because at the beginning, when I hire a writer, I let them know, hey, I am not going to credit you specifically. You're going to be writing as a ghost writer, so it's just going to go on a website. I usually don't let them know the website ahead of time unless 
I really need to for some reason. They obviously know the topic, so they do uh, know what they're writing about. Of course, that's silly. I don't even know why I said that. But the point is you can give them credit or not. If I started working with someone for a long period of time, then perhaps I will give them a login on WordPress and then I can give them a a persona on there if they want it. So if, if it moves to a point where I'm comfortable working with a writer, I like the writer, I want to keep working with them and give them a a place where they do have a byline, I will do it, but it's not critical. And it's just important at the beginning of the gig to essentially agree on what you want to do. And because you are the hiring manager, it is up to you. You can do uh, whatever you want with that. Next question is from Zachariah. He says, have you ever tried e-commerce, specifically drop shipping? And if you have, do you prefer that to Amazon affiliate? So I haven't ever created an e-commerce site or drop shipping. I just remembered at one point in time, a while back, I actually was looking on Flippa. This is like six years ago. I was looking on Flippa because I was thinking, hey, it could be interesting just to experiment with a drop shipping site. And I looked at a few and just kind of browsed and then eventually didn't move forward with it. But I could tell you the drop shipping can be a fantastic business model for longtime listeners of the show. You know that I mention all the time, just, I mean, any business model can work. You can find great examples of podcast, YouTube, a blog, an affiliate site, drop shipping, a Shopify store. I mean, fill in the blank. You can do great business and run an ethical business in any one of those areas. Like it's totally possible. There's there's nothing really holding you back. I do have an interview, an update with John Murphy, who I think I had him on when he hit around 100K per month of top line revenue with his dropshipping site. And he's recently grown a lot by like 5X. So he made over half a million, again, top line revenue. And you can Google and kind of figure out sort of like the average drop shipping margin that people may see. And you will see that he's making a lot of money and it's 70% or more organic traffic coming in through, you know, low competition, long tail keywords. And I think at this point he's getting, you know, more, more traffic and shorter tail keywords. He's doing some really cool stuff. I just interviewed him yesterday. So I'm excited to publish that episode. But the point is, uh, Zachariah, I like affiliate marketing in general, and I like courses. And I think dropshipping can be totally fine. It's just a different business model. I think when you start combining skills like John has done, where he's using his organic SEO traffic skills to get traffic, right? To get traffic to his dropshipping site and make the sales where traditionally dropshippers will run ads and make sure that the math works out and they can run ads to get traffic to their sites. So they don't have to wait for organic SEO. But in John's case, he wasn't able to run ads for his site. We talk about that in the, in the episode, but the point is you can pick a business model. Uh, Many of them can work out really, really well. For me, Amazon affiliate marketing worked out really well first. And then I just 
dug in. I think that is one of my approaches. When I find something that works or that I enjoy, I go really deep into it and continue to refine and hopefully get better at what I'm doing versus like branching out and trying to do a bunch of other things. So I just went really deep in Amazon affiliate because it was the first thing. It literally was the first thing that worked out for me. And then I just haven't looked up. I am shifting as you know time sort of goes on. I'm shifting to what I view as less risky business models like the course model, right? You probably know that I have a couple courses out there and I've been requested to create several different courses over time and I just wasn't doing it. And now as um, you know, things have shifted, Amazon doesn't pay out as much as they used to. There's always Google algorithm updates coming around. I've had the opportunity and the I made the decision that I'm shifting some more of my business and more of my efforts into creating courses because I know that it's a little bit easier for me to grow that area. And like I said, I know, I mean, people are asking for these courses and I, I keep putting them off. And then eventually I realized, Hey, I need to, um, you know, go ahead, create some of these courses. I actually enjoy it quite a bit. And as I get into a groove with it, it's pretty fun to write the course material, shoot the course material, sell it, and then move on. So I, I've seen it work well for you know many, many other people. And I was thinking, hey, this is a great way to you know shift some of my business and work on things that are a little bit more interesting to me. Here's the reality, right? And if you go back and listen to some of the episodes with Rob Atkinson, it gets a little boring. I mean, there's moving pieces to all these websites, but at some point it's just, I mean, it's work like anything else. And it gets a little boring to, you know, keep finding more keywords and then going to find more data from you know, the different tools that we have available and then writing more content and having writers write more content. It just, it becomes a little bit routine and it's fun to learn new things and work on other stuff. So again, at some point, you know, building these sites is not super enjoyable. It's, I mean, it was fun. It was really fun when it was brand new, but after several years, it's a little less exciting. So creating new things is pretty exciting. Like the the podcast was new a couple years ago. I'm almost two years in here. YouTube has been really fun. There's always like things shifting and, you know, new, new approaches and you have to compete against uh, the full market out there as well. So I am uh, definitely branching out a little bit just in general and still have, you know, sites out there. And I'm, I have, you know, as, as I said, it does get a little boring, but to stay current and understand, you know, what the heck's going on out there, I do create new sites and I started a new one over the summer. And um, a couple of things that I'm working on is, you know, trying to revamp some of the sites that I've just let sit and totally neglect because at some point in time I realized, all right, I got five sites out there, five, six sites, and I'm, sp- I'm just splitting my time splitting my time across all of them. I'm making very slow to no progress. So I realized I better focus up and work on a small number of them and and get some traction, which is what I did. And then of course the others just, I I knew I could always come back to them, but I literally, I literally neglected them for years. 
now I'm coming back and I'm, I'm looking at it. All right. Can I resurrect this site? Like what will happen? It's uh, it's sort of like an expired domain, except it never expired. And it's just been sitting there with nothing happening. I have a hunch. I'm not sure, but I have a hunch that it could be very interesting to pump it full of content, sort of revitalize and re-update things. Now, the downside is some of these sites have hundreds of pieces of content. So it's not a trivial exercise to get into, but could be interesting because it is a new thing and it's uh, not the same sort of you know routine process that I described before. All right. I think we'll wrap up the Q&A segment here. Thanks again to Niche Website Builders. Do check out some of their services. They have a couple, I think they have a couple uh, pretty interesting case studies over there that are documented. I don't think they've been updated super recently, but if you have, um, if you haven't seen them, it's interesting to check them out. You can save 10% on their link building packages, and you can also get 10% additional content if you buy one of their done-for-you sites or if you buy a content subscription, all right? So you can save some money or get more content. And I haven't uh, checked the data for my shotgun skyscraper campaign, but it was pretty stellar the last time that I looked. And if you missed that update a couple episodes ago, Basically, I think I have seven links and the DR, the domain rating as reported by Hrefs was 69. That was the average. So there were a few in the 70s, some a little lower, I think maybe a couple in the high 40s and it averaged out to around 69, which is exceptionally high. That is way higher than I expected. I think it's higher than what they expected. And I think the other links that come down will be a little bit less in the DR area. Regardless, thanks to Niche Website Builders and their Q&A segment. Let's get to the last Fi tip here. You probably realized that Carl mentioned that he saved a million dollars. He and his wife, Mindy, saved a million dollars. And that was basically enough for them to live on the interest and cover their expenses. So that's sort of the idea. And you may be wondering, okay, like how, how can I do this? Like, what do I need to aim towards to be able to, you know, I don't want to say retire early, but essentially to be financially independent so that you can work on whatever you want to or not work on anything if that is what you choose. There's some fairly simple math behind it, but it's put together from a complex study and simulations. There are many of these on the web. And Mindy explains it very well. She explains it uh, better than I probably could. So I'm just going to send it to the clip here. So for the people that don't know, like what's the quick definition of the 4% rule? So the 4% rule is based on a study done by William Bangan. I don't know, in the 80s, I think. He looked at all of the past uh, stock market data. And he said, based on past performance, and past performance is not indicative of future gains, based on past stock market performance, if you save X amount of money and withdraw 4% in the first year and then readjust for inflation every year, you should be able to retire for or live off your, your savings, your investments for 30 years and have at least not run out of money for 30 years with, I think, a 96% chance of success. So basically, if you take the inverse of that, 25 times your annual spending is 
what you need to have in investments in order to be financially free. Um, so our number, just like most people, we spend about $40,000 a year. So 40 times 25 is a million dollars. We had a million dollars. We got to our, Carl calls it the double comma club. We got mm-hmm. to the double comma club. And then we essentially doubled that with, you know, the crazy stock market that we've had right now. So that is what the 4% rule is. If you can live off of 4% of your investments as an annual spending, mm-hmm. you should be good to go. Mindy defined it really well. You just understand your annual expenses, and then you could multiply it by 25. If you want to be more conservative, you could multiply it by 30 or 33, and you end up with a larger number. It gives you a little bit more of a cushion. Of course, the prerequisite is understanding your expenses. Now, the other thing that you can add into the mix is let's say you have a side hustle. Let's say you have some revenue generating activity. Maybe it's a blog. Maybe you start a podcast like this and then you have sponsors on here and you actually earn money from that, which is kind of crazy, but it is a thing that can happen. And if you are earning some money, then you won't need to cover as many expenses from your retirement savings. And that is a whole other aspect. So for example, if you realize that maybe you don't want to live as sort of frugally as some other people and you, your normal expenses, you want them to be say 80,000, all right, I'm just making that up, but we'll say it's double what Mindy and Carl are generally spending. So it's 80,000. If you can figure out how to make say 20,000 per year on the side, then you only need to cover a smaller portion of 40,000. I can't even remember the numbers that I'm saying (laughs) like one sentence ago, but essentially if you could figure out how to make $40,000, right, then you only have to cover half of your expenses or you can view it the other way. Let's say your expenses are relatively cheap at a bare minimum at say 30 to 40,000, but you're thinking, hey, I want to take some expensive trips or maybe splurge and do some more interesting things or maybe you want to buy a new car to you know, travel in or something like that or you want to buy an RV. Well, you can work just to cover those additional expenses that actually exceed what you have budgeted. Now, I don't, I don't encourage people to exceed what they have budgeted. You know, that's not what we're what we're trying to do. But it could be fun to work some on something that you enjoy, and then you reward yourself by buying things that and doing activities. Now, I really don't like to buy things. I like to do activities, go on vacations, and have experiences. That's kind of where I like to spend my money and. You could just work as much as you need to cover those expenses. So you could, there's really tons of flexibility once you understand the math behind it, which is not obviously overly complicated. You do have to have some faith and trust in the, in the 4% rule and that the stock market is not going to completely um, collapse or the monetary system is not going to collapse. That would obviously be catastrophic. And I would argue no matter what you're trying to do, you're going to have to adjust at that point. But when you look at the historical data, it's 
we're in pretty good shape. I mean, we've had some crazy stock market swings in the last six months, but things are still operating relatively okay. People lost a lot of money. And if you didn't pull your money out of the market, it went back up. I actually bought a lot of things when the stock market went down. So it was like things were on sale. Uh, many, most stocks, not everything, but most stocks seem to recover at, on a whole. The stock market did come back up. So if you do look at the total total stock market index funds and you look at how they dropped and how they recovered, um, things are generally, you know, while it's volatile in the short term, you can sort of trust the trends uh, over time. All right. So let me know if you if you like this clip episode. It actually took me a little bit longer to put together, but it was fun going back to you know cherry pick certain topics that I found interesting and to mix in the mailbag questions along with these highlight reel type questions. Not questions, the highlight reels in general. So I'm going to leave it at that today. Have a good day. Have a good weekend, whatever morning, afternoon, whatever it is. And we'll catch you on the next episode.